Welcome, everybody. I'm excited to welcome my guest for today. Patricia Young is a highly sensitive therapist, coach, and podcaster. She teaches an online course to help HSPs discover their superpowers and create meaningful and authentic connections. Patricia, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay, John. Thanks. How about yourself? I'm all right. Thank you for your patience and flexibility and (laughs) willingness to humor (laughs) me with some new technology and a Totally get it. Decision to stream this on YouTube. <laughs> I appreciate that a lot. No um, worries. Well, I'm excited to have you, and maybe uh, maybe you can just expand a little bit first on your your intro. We gave kind of the official intro, but what else should people know about you, and and also what's going on in your world right now? Well, I guess I'm curious if your listeners know about what a highly sensitive person is, because that's kind of an important. Be a good thing. place to start. <laughs> The informal definition, it's a Dr. Elaine Aaron researched the trait back in the 90s. It's how we come wired. We're born this way. They've discovered the trait in over 100 animal species. If you've been told you're too sensitive, you're too dramatic, you're too intense, you can't take a joke, you think too much, you worry too much, you might be a highly sensitive person. I've probably gotten a few of those. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But we're we're deep thinkers. Go go ahead. ahead. What percentage of therapists do you think are highly sensitive people? I have a sense of a pretty fair amount. 50% of clients in therapy are HSPs. The two most common Myers-Briggs are INFJ and INFP for HSPs. That doesn't mean you're an HSP. Mm-hmm. You know, we're loyal, we're conscientious, we are deep thinkers, we process things, we see things that other things don't, we come up with solutions that other people don't, we're highly empathic. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting, right? Because there is a P... The, it's a bit of a prerequisite as a therapist to be sensitive, or at least to be, be be able to attune to one's own feelings and the feelings of clients, right? You would and hope so. Use, you would hope so, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, you're right about that. <laughs> so the good, ther- the effective therapists have to be sensitive enough to get the job done, right? Um, and, and to be yeah. willing to do our own work. Yeah. you know, to rumble with their own stuff that I think those of us that have wounding are really great at helping clients in their lives. But some of us don't do our own work. And when it comes to yeah. conflict or things to work out in our own lives, we don't know how to do that. And that impacts our role as therapists. Yeah, for sure. So um, it's interesting. How did you get started in um, with with this particular interest? There is nothing in my life, John, that is very linear. I thought I was an introvert. I thought I had social anxiety. And I don't even remember who told me about the trait of high sensitivity. And when I read about it, everything just fell into place. And I had really already adjusted my practice. I Part of being a highly sensitive person is we're very in tune with ourselves and really understand. So I'd already adjusted my therapy practice in most ways to adapt to highly sensitive people without knowing what it was. And then learning about the trade, it's like, boom, this is what I want to do. This is what I want my podcast to be about. And everything just kind of fell into place. Mm-hmm. So I could I could assume some of the, um, I suppose, the side effects of being a highly sensitive person, but maybe uh, it's maybe we're more concerned with the superpowers, as you put it in your, <laughs> your, your kind of bio. What, what are a, a few of the superpowers that you see? We're incredibly creative. We see solutions to things that other people don't. We're able to attune to other people. We notice things that others don't. We're the justice makers. We're the healers. We have amazing strengths. The downside is we tend to get overwhelmed and over aroused very easily. 
And Ariana Smith uses this analogy that our bathtubs fill up very quickly. And when we pull the drain, they drain very slowly. And because our bathtubs are so full, there's not a lot of room to slosh around. That's quite, that's quite the image. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why I credit her because it's just a beautiful analogy. Mm, nice. Well, I, you know, I reached out to you in part because, um, I read your Facebook post just a number of weeks ago and it sparked a healthy dose of comments from, from, from people, <laughs> mostly therapists. And, um, you know, this, this show is for therapists. We primarily talk about the, the business of, of mental health, um, uh, uh, building, growing a private practice. And you said some really interesting things that stood out to me. Do, do you mind if I bring up a couple of those things? Please. Cool. Um, so, I mean, one thing that you brought up was uh, right off the bat, like a, a reason you prefer um, coaching to therapy is the ability to show up freely as a human. You said uh, to show up freely as a human who cares for my clients and to interact relationally with them without fear. Um, we could talk for an hour just about you know, unpacking that in itself, right? But say more about that and the um, the evolution for you from therapist to coach and how that has enabled you to, to to operate more more freely. Yeah, I, I want to be really clear that when we, as therapists or coaches, decide that we want to have a more relational type of therapy, I'm still very boundaryed. I'm still very ethical. I do a mm. lot of self disclosure, but it's very intentional. So I want to be very clear that when I say I feel very constricted by the rules of therapy and all of the rules. We really lose the human being in that. And you have to be a seasoned therapist to understand yourself and why you're doing what you're doing. So uh, go ahead. You want to say something? No, that's no, keep going. <laughs> so I love being able to, especially with highly sensitive people. And, and if your listeners are therapists, half of your clients are highly sensitive people. We tend to run on the anxious side. We worry. If you don't know that those are your clients and you're trying to get them to be less anxious or not think as much, you're creating more wounding in your clients. And because of my own personal wounding, learning about being a highly sensitive person, getting all of those messages, I use self-disclosure a lot and I always get consent from clients. First, hey, I want to share something with you. Then I want to see how it lands with you. And my clients tell me that it's so validating to have somebody say, I get it. If I'm going through something that's similar to what the client is, I, I will share that. And it's so normalizing and validating. And we are having, I mean, I think how we make powerful change in therapy is with the relationships that we have with our clients. And if you look through an attachment lens, that means being solid, secure, and modeling secure relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, is it that these days you, you do both coaching and therapy with people or how do you kind of, I really only want to do coaching. <laughs> That's really what my preference is. I started out doing in-home therapy. I have a Medicare client left. I do have people that contact me and because of needing to have a write-off for insurance, I, I like, I will do therapy because I understand that people need to use it. My preference is coaching just because it gives me more room. And I'll tell you that I still tend to default to the most conservative form of coaching just because I'm a rule follower. You know, I, I can use Zoom for my coaching stuff. I use a HIPAA compliant platform because mm -hmm. that's, you know, I, I still tend to default to what is more conservative. Mm -hmm. and, and if a client is, let's say a client reaches out to you and they're like, I don't know what I need, right? Whether it's coaching or therapy, or maybe I'm right down the middle. How, how do you explain the difference between the two and how do you help them decide? 
I have a messy definition. I really haven't been able to come up with something. You know, the, the traditional thing is therapy is about the past and coaching is about the present. If you're mm-hmm. highly sensitive, we have to go back and look at where the wounding came from. For me, an ideal coaching client is basically someone like myself. I'm wounded. I still have issues that come up. I'm functioning well enough. I'm not going to be hospitalized. I'm not suicidal. Mm -hmm. And I want to move forward. I want to dig in and look at what's going on. And I love being able to give insights with clients and see if we can't move them forward. And if you need to be where you're at, that's fine. I don't have a, a need for you to make progress and move forward. But I just feel like it gives me the freedom to be authentic and to really step in there. Mm-hmm. Can, can you remember the first moment where uh, I, I guess you you felt that uh, that opportunity to to be as authentic as you want to be, or uh, maybe when you really felt the the benefit of uh, a true kind of coaching relationship versus a therapy relationship? <laughs> no, but but what I can offer you. I feel like I never have the right answer. <laughs> That's all right. In my podcast, I do bonus episodes, and they're almost always about things that I'm struggling with personally. I have a really strong value about wanting to model that it's okay to struggle, it's okay to rumble with things. And I want people to see that, that you can be functioning well enough and still struggle with things. And I think there's, you know, when I see these things about do these five things so you're not anxious, do these things so you're not depressed. I think that's a tremendous disservice. If you are alive and human, you will struggle with things. That is the nature of being human. Will you have joy? Will you have, you know, an ease in your life? Of course. And will you struggle with things? Absolutely. And I don't think we talk enough about the struggle and model the struggle. Got it. Okay. So part of it is just being able to, to infuse even more of kind of your own story or your own authenticity, whereas the... The traditional model, or some of the the roots of our of, of psychotherapy, are around therapists being in position of power. That power is often abused, unfortunately. Um, yep. That power is often felt, right? Even from the first session of um, there's this therapist who's buttoned up, or clearly must have their life together, or you know knows more than me and is probably more. Uh, you know, emotionally intelligent than me or whatever it is, right? My therapist doesn't have problems is a big assumption. And they're in this position where um, uh, I know a tremendous amount about my client, but my client knows very little about me. So that's dynamic, yes. That does not work for me. And I spent Mm -hmm. years in therapy, John, and I still struggled and I kept wondering what is wrong with me? How come I'm not getting it? My therapist just would have said, you're going to continue to struggle. You'll struggle less. You'll have more tools. And that's a normal thing. I just kept thinking, what is wrong with me that I continue to struggle? Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. So it must have been quite quite liberating to discover that maybe it's not me. Maybe it's the model. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and what clients say is they just appreciate the transparency. I also run groups and I often will model. I mean, I, I had a group a, a couple of weeks ago and it's like I'm having imposter syndrome. I know I know what I'm doing, but I'm having this thing like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, wow, you shared that? Yeah, it gives people permission to show up authentically. They they know how deep they can go. We're not playing. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. I'm, and man, what a time uh, in in history right now to not be fine, or for <laughs> for most of us to not be fine in one way or another, or many ways. Right. So I'm wondering what you know things have been like for you the past twelve months, and also what you what you what do you see among therapists in terms of 
the things that we're helping clients through or just the added uh, level of pressure for therapists. There's great demand for therapy right now. There's a lot of burnout um, that's kind of right under the surface for many of us or maybe taking you know, some therapists over the edge. Like, what do you, How do you see that all going? I think it's really been an opportunity for therapists to join with their clients in an appropriate way. I mean, it's been a brutal year for all of us, for therapists, for clients. And, you know, I had clients that would say, this is what I'm struggling with. And I'd be like, yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm right there with mm-hmm. you. Not in a way to have them feel powerless, but to say, we haven't ever been here before. We're both in new territory. And, and how can I support you in finding out? I have a client who's been struggling for a year because there are no resources. And it's been really difficult to feel so powerless. We talk about that. You know, we're basically helping with survival skills because there is not a way out right now. And it means having to take care of ourselves. And I've been incredibly depleted the last couple of weeks. And I'd taken mm-hmm. a vacation in a couple of weeks because this is hard. It's hard stuff for all of us, but we can name it in session. I mean, I don't go to session and say, let me tell you about how hard COVID is on me. I don't do that. The client brings it up. I will mirror and validate that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, obviously the the dance or the, the balance is to mirror and validate that without making it about you, right? That's it's even a piece why a lot of new counselors are taught to either not self-disclose or to do it very, very judiciously, right? Because sometimes then the, the tables turn to the client being worried about you or focus on you. Right. Or, hey, well, now I feel bad for, you know, struggling given that you're struggling too, or maybe you're struggling worse. And um, Right. Yeah. And I make it really clear that I'm good with what's going on. I don't need to be cared for. And if, if a client says like... Many of the ways that I create safety is, you know, at the beginning when you say, how are you doing? And the client asks you, if I'm tired, I I had a really emotional day last week and I met with a client and I said, I had a really emotional day today. I'm good, but I'm letting you know. So if you're noticing that my energy is down or there's something off about me, that's what it is, but I'm okay. If the Mm -hmm. client asks me what happened, I will redirect back to them. Mm -hmm. But especially with our highly sensitive clients, and if we've got wounding, we're really good about taking care of other people and not focusing on ourselves. That is not my job as a therapist to have my clients take care of me, but to name what's going on. I mean, I've seen threads about do I yawn or not yawn in session. I'm a yawner and I fidget and I let clients know before we even meet. Like I yawn, I fidget. And if I'm having a yawny day, I'll say, how is it for you that I'm wiggling around and yawning? I've never had a client go, it's distracting. I I mean, I think they appreciate the authenticity. Yeah. I'm so curious about that because I was taught... Um, pretty rigidly not to yawn or uh, or like eat in session or things like that. Um, and that's, that one's tricky for me because honestly, for me, yawning um, would be really distracting for me. Or when I have had my own therapist yawn, I find it distracting. I find that, um, yeah, they must be tired enough in this session that um, that they're having a hard time even just showing up or doing the session or um uh, I guess kind of stomaching their tiredness for the sake of me not feeling like I'm boring them, right? Which is a very strong association with someone yawning when you're talking to them. Right. But did your therapist bring that into the room? Was there any explicit discussion about the yawning? Because what mm. happens is you're my client. I yawn. I don't say anything about it. You're processing it and we move on and that's not creating safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point, right? Making, commenting on it, making it explicit or... Um, 
I mean, along those lines, even note taking, for instance, can be a point of, especially on Zoom, right? It's like, mm-hmm. what's my what's my therapist doing? They, look, they keep looking over here. They, you know, mm-hmm. they keep like fidgeting with something. Um, and so, just being really explicit that you know what what you just said was really important. I want to make sure I get it down on my notepad, right? That I have right here, right? Right. Um, because clients are they have all sorts of hypotheses about what you're doing or what you think about them. Clients want desperately to know what does my therapist really think about me, right? And so we have to pay attention to those details. And I would say even more so on Zoom when little things like that are very, uh, you know, easily, you know, misinterpreted potentially. We're dealing with just less information, so to speak, when we're on Zoom. Right. Well, I tell all my clients before we meet in at the first session, I will misattune to you. It's just a given. I'm human. So when that happens, will you be able to let me know in the moment? And if not, if you leave a situation, I often leave something, I go like, what the heck just happened? I'm like, shoot me an email and say, hey, something happened in session and I want to talk about it. Having ruptures and misattunement can really strengthen the therapeutic relationship. It's our job as therapists to create safety for that and to say, I may make a mistake. We're going to do this dance of of when you first meet with someone. Do you need me to listen more? Do you need me to talk more? Those are really okay things. And if we don't bring it up, we don't create safety for our clients. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I I want to go back to uh, something that you had said about um, when you made this post in particular, basically saying in so many words, um, I'm, I am very real with my clients, right? You even use the yawning example in your post. Um, but you also said um, you saw a client or you know a colleague post in another Facebook group for therapists about something she was thinking about doing and basically was met with quite a bit of um, uh, judgment from other therapists. And this is something I keep finding myself talking about quite a bit. Um, and I see a lot of therapists getting shamed publicly in Facebook groups or um, people very quick to point the finger and therapists going into Facebook groups trying to get help, right? Or think, oh, wow, hey, there's 4,000 therapists in this group. Maybe they could help me with this tricky question or this nuanced, you know, clinical question, right? And then um, it often doesn't go that way, right? So what what are your thoughts on that and on just, yeah, therapists interacting online? It can be really scary. And in this instant, I did not respond in the group. This was a group that I really thought was a safe place. And when I saw all Mm -hmm. the rigid responses, it it really, it was a little disappointing to me. And I reached out to the person that posted privately and said, hey, here's my thought. And we talked about it offline, which is what spurred me to write the post that I did. I don't find a lot of the Facebook groups to be really safe places. And it goes back at that thing of there are rules to keep clients safe if we don't have the maturity and the wisdom and the ability to put the relationship to to consider the relationship and the client's needs with whatever the rule is we are just rule followers and rules do not work for everybody in every situation and we are having human relationships with other humans and we need to have the skill and the ability to figure out how to meet the client's needs relationally and not with rules mm-hmm. And that's where I see things breaking down in, 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 in Facebook groups. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because as therapists, we are, um, we're in a sense, in a sense, playing a role for our clients in that we are being who they need us to be today, right? Or in that session, sometimes that might be very, uh, uh, soft and 
empathic. Sometimes it's a little more active or a little more challenging of your clients. Um, we're good at doing that, right? When it's like, I'm in the chair and clearly that's my job. My job is to be empathic to this person. And then 10 minutes later, you, a therapist may hop on Facebook and like, that's all out the window, right? And it's judgments, criticism, it's your fee is what you're charging, how much, right? Like, I just think it's, um, yeah, it's ironic that that is the case. Um, and I think maybe also just a lot of pent up feelings, stress, burnout, COVID, you know, Zoom therapy, all this stuff kind of rolled into one and the anonymity of it, of course, just like teenagers bullying, you know, online. There's just like, hey, I could say this thing and get out a little bit of my anger and hey, no real consequence. <laughs> I'm probably never going to meet this person in this Facebook which, group, right? Which is why it's so important for us to do our own work to be able to sit in the gray. You know, we want to go to the, it's this or that, the either or, as opposed to both and. It takes tremendous maturity to be able to sit in that gray area and to sit with the discomfort and to know that just because this is what the rule is may not be what's best for the situation. I'm not talking about anything unethical or egregious. I want to be very clear about that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's harder for our brains. It takes a little more work for our brains to <laughs> to to sit with the the gray, right? We our brains are kind of designed to make things black and white so we can understand it easily and put it in a category, right? And that becomes applied to one another, right? Or to again a therapist saying, "Hey, can I get some advice on this?" and therapist either saying, "Hey, it's right or wrong," right? It's like, "Let me let me pick a side real quick, even though sides didn't need to be created. But don't we ask our clients to sit in that gray area and to sit with, with discomfort? We want mm, to increase their yeah, distress sure. tolerance. Why aren't we doing it? I mean, I'm not saying everybody's not. I don't, yeah. I, there, there, there definitely is a part of me that's incredibly judgy about what I see in therapy groups. I want to name that. Yeah. So if you feel that coming out sideways, I'm really trying to keep it a tap on it, but it's there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Going back to the the Zoom thing, I'm really curious. Like in your work, both with your clients and also just in your, your being a, a therapist, among therapists and a coach, um, what's it been like for you to 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 work on Zoom? Um, what do you what do you see in terms of therapists doing this work? Clients, um, yeah. Any thoughts on that piece? I was 90% online before the pandemic, and I loved being online. It's been brutal during the pandemic, which which makes no sense. But I think because for me, this year has been about so much incredible loss and mm. loss of social time and connection and how much I feel empowered when I'm driving around in my car and I listen to podcasts and I don't want to listen to podcasts if I'm sitting at home. So it's been very unbalanced because it would make sense. Like I worked from home and I was online before the pandemic. It's been really hard. I don't want you know, I have a, a monthly training, one or two trainings a month online. It is so hard for me to stay focused. I haven't been able to read a book for a year because this is it, it's hard. Yeah. This is trauma. This is ongoing trauma we're experiencing. We may not all be traumatized. It's been brutal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I even feel that kind of validating to hear, right? <laughs> that uh, kind of permission to acknowledge how how hard it's been. Um, well, here, here's an interesting question for you. You know, I often hear clients, especially lately, and especially because of having abundant access to the internet, clients that will be doing really good work in session. And it's like, I've got this suffering or I lost this person in my life. And then they immediately go, but I know people have it way worse and people because of COVID, you know, lost their jobs or lost two people. You know, I only lost one person. They lost two people, right? There's this almost like 
suffering uh, Olympics of sorts and, um, you know, discounting my own suffering because there's always someone out there who has it worse than me. Um, and I find that very unhelpful for clients that they can't just acknowledge their suffering as relative to them and what they have, right? Or, yeah, I'm suffering. I lost someone, but, you know, I got a job and a 401k. It's like, what? <laughs> well, yeah. I think this is about our culture's inability to allow us to have our feelings because if if somebody dies, what somebody say, well, they were old, you know, like, like nobody can come yeah, in and probably, allow you to yeah. sit with your grief. And so Brene mm -hmm. Brown did an episode on comparative suffering on her podcast, Unlocking Us. It's very powerful. I, I interviewed Justine Frolker early on in my podcast and something that she said profoundly impacted how I show up as a therapist. She talks about the power of both and. And, you know, yes, there are these losses. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's significant. We need to create room for that. And where do we have control? But it's not minimizing. And we tend to do this thing where we compare all the time and minimize our loss. And we have got to hold space for that. Otherwise, we're just doing cognitive behavior. It, it'll be better. It'll all get shiny and happy. If we don't allow space for those things that are hard, we cannot move forward and heal. Yeah. Yeah, it's well said, right? And giving that client some of that language to, to see the both and in it, right? And to refocus in on their actual loss or suffering because that's that's why they're here like that's why you're that's why we're meeting today so you know in session yeah yeah, yeah. our culture is not real comfortable with feelings especially intense feelings and we mm -hmm. label feelings as positive or negative they're just energy it's stuff that moves through us we need to have a voice for all of those uncomfortable i went through something a week ago and i was talking with somebody about it there are young parts of me in this situation like I want the other people to suffer and I want them to hurt as much as I do. And I want them to, I hope that they're, you know, like, it's okay for me to have that voice inside. Do I tell yeah. that to anybody? Do I bring it back to the situation? No. But those parts that feel angry and young, those need to have a place to be heard. Yeah. It's an interesting way of putting it for sure. Yeah. And that allows me to show up and not act out and not have, you know, stuff leak out sideways because I haven't allowed for those young. I mean, we all have that young angry. You're not the boss of me. You can't make me. <laughs> right? <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I got a few yeah. of those. <laughs> yeah. We all do. We all do. We've got a rebellious toddler and teenager. Yeah. Yeah, little little parts work. Um mm -hmm. probably good for all of us. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious more about um also your business, right? And uh, and you have a few things going on between therapy, you have coaching, you have a a, a podcast that sounds really um, uh, really wonderful and probably a really impactful way for you to spread, uh, spread the word and kind of accomplish your, your own mission. Um, what does it mean to be a highly sensitive person and a business owner, right? Or, um, to what effect do feelings influence, I say, let's say business decisions or, or kind of plans that you have? It's a fine balance. I love being an entrepreneur. I love being able to set my own schedule, decide who I work with. In those respects, it's ideal for me. And I, I get overwhelmed. And with the pandemic, I've had to make choices about what has, you know, what I have to let go of and trying to figure out where that balance is. But I think that's true for all of us. And I tell myself I can do hard things. Anytime I do, even today, we were going to meet on another platform and I couldn't log in and I found myself getting nervous. The first half of the session, my heart was pounding. I'm like, I do this all the time. Like, why am I nervous? Learning how to know I can do hard things. I get nervous before new things to just know that that's part of it and to learn how to manage 
is a really big part of it. Having great support is also really important. Staying connected to my friends. Yeah. Mm. Did that answer your question? I think so. I'm <laughs> your face is really hard to read. I don't get a lot back oh, from really? you. I got I got to say. <laughs> I've never really been told that. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, part of, you know, part of it is I'm I'm kind of crunching the numbers and just thinking about where else we can go with this. And also, yeah. you know, my, my goal, like when I'm doing these interviews is in part to extract from you, like your core kind of message. But also when I think about our therapists who, who will listen to this, they're wondering, how can I learn something from Patricia that will help me be successful in my business? Sure. Because there's a lot of people out there who don't have a client yet or haven't made a dollar, right? Or just have two clients and they're wondering like you have really clearly found like uh, a message, a niche, a voice, all these things. And so I'm wondering like, yeah, for those people who don't have any of that, what, what would you tell them? Or like, um, yeah. I, I think often our own wounding and our own healing leads us to the people that we work with. I think many of us are wounded healers. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what gives me strength and insight from my clients and empathy. And I don't have any shame around the wounding that I have. That's really what has informed what my ideal clients are. And I didn't know that. I started out seeing everybody and I, you know, which were the clients that made me want to poke my eyeballs out and, you know, then holding space for lots and lots of clients. I don't mean that disrespectfully until I figured out what are the clients that I do my best work with? And it's a disservice for me to see clients that are not a good fit for me. Starting to tune into mm -hmm. the clients that you have, that you have energy with. And it may not even be the, the, the area of focus, maybe the type of client, clients that have more insight, clients that are really angry, clients that are very, you know, that, that may resonate with some therapists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's some level of, uh, I guess some people feel some sense of guilt for not wanting to work with every kind of client, right? Because there's certainly some pressure in that, especially as you're starting out that like, um, you know, I remember when I was working at the uh, at a clinic in graduate school where it's like, you just take whoever walks in the door and hopefully you can figure it out. And hopefully they're, you know, no one's talking about, is this a good fit for you? Is this your ideal client? Like, that's not a phrase I heard for many years. Um, and then graduating and going into agency work, it's like, you would just literally work with whoever is kind of next in line, even if it's a horrible fit for, for both of you. So, yeah. But I think that's sometimes part of what we have to do. I worked home health. I worked in a hospital for nine mm -hmm. years. I think it's, I think it's helpful to know how to deal with all types of people. And when you get to a point in your practice where you can choose, then you get to choose, but we don't always all start out that way. Very few people start out knowing what they want to specialize in. Mm-hmm. At what point did it become clear to you what you wanted to specialize in? Just a couple of years ago, honestly. I, I had a sense when I started private practice because I had a hospital background, I thought I could see everybody and I had to file a terrace off on a client and mm -hmm. it was very draining. The work that I was doing was very draining. And when I learned about the trait of being a highly sensitive person, I created this online course for people. I, I, I really want people to know there is nothing wrong with them, that we have amazing gifts and strengths to offer the world comes with challenges too. So that mission became very clear to me. And then things started to fall into place. It has not been easy. Things did not come together as quickly as I expected. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of part of how it is. You got to be in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And what, was there a point at which you thought, man, maybe this niche won't work or maybe this niche is um, yeah, not going to kind of land with people? With the groups I did, 
HSPs are a really hard sell and I'm one of them. I mean, I will, you know, rumble with the decision and should I, you know, when I bought the podcasting course, I called my husband crying saying, I just spent a lot of money on a podcasting course. And what if I don't do it? And what if I fail? Is that okay? And he's Mm -hmm. like, it's fine. And so I think this pull to make the perfect decision and and I ran the courses for a while and then I kind of stopped advertising them because it was so much work to try and convince people that it was something helpful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think we go through cycles where we question, we wonder. I think that's just part of it. I, I, it, my whole process has not been exciting uphill all the time. There are times when I'm burned yeah. out, I'm tired, I don't like what I'm doing. I figure out what I need yeah. to do. I just know, just kind of hang in there. I, I think again, mm-hmm. like we think we find out what we want to do, and it's going to be joyful and blissful and energizing all the time. Like that's not been my experience. Mm-hmm. That's we fair. suit up and show up. I mean, if if it were draining me and I hated it, then obviously I'd stop. But I go through periods where it's like, ah, this is just really hard and I'm not enjoying it. Fair enough. I mean, how about you? Um, In terms of which part? I don't know. Therapy, your podcast. Do you always love it? Do you always feel 100% motivated? Definitely not. <laughs> I, I talk about modes in business, you know, with my, with the therapist that I coach, some of the modes that I talk about are um, their startup mode when you're just starting something new, whether it's a practice or just a part of your business, like a course or a podcast, and you're going to be very in it, very energized, very connected to, to the whole thing. <clears throat> uh, there's kind of growth mode where you're push, still pushing, pushing, pushing. There's maintenance which is a mode that I went into a lot this year. <laughs> you know, I I moved, I had an international move in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. I had my first child. Um, everything was turned upside down. And so that means everything's going into maintenance mode, meaning I end up doing the, the least that I need to do to keep the ball rolling, to keep income happening, right? And to just be okay. And so that might look like a four-hour workday. That might look like, you know, just a couple clients, you know, or just seeing the clients I have and not taking on anyone new and not starting any new courses or programs or anything crazy um, and letting that be okay. And the, the irony is every time I've done that, nothing bad has ever happened. My business never plummets. Sometimes I make even more money when I step back and let it breathe. And Or I have good ideas sometimes when I'm in maintenance mode and I'm just resting, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but that, the burnout mode is real, right? When people are pushing too hard for too long, Um for, for whatever reason, right? And I think therapists need to be very, very careful with that right now. I think it's a real threat to to many of us. And I think the, the, the demand on therapists is not going anywhere. I think it's only going to keep mm. increasing. It's not like COVID is going to be over, quote unquote, I hear people say that, and then it's going to be like a light switch and we're all <laughs> we're all okay again. Uh, I just think this is taking a toll on therapists and therapists, you know, a vacation's good, but then you come back, you know, six days after vacation, you're like, bam, I'm right back into what I needed a break from, you know? Yeah. So I think self-care, you know, I put in quotations because that, that word has lost meaning for most therapists, has to be reimagined, has to be rethought. I think a lot of it has to do with how you structure your business, your time, your money, how you think about your clients or how you think about, you know, how much you kind of owe your clients. Um, so I just think we need to keep thinking about these things because we're we're right in the thick of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm convinced that research is going to show how how much we've been impacted by COVID over the next couple of years. I mean, I I've changed in ways that I don't feel very good about. There are things about COVID mm-hmm. that I think have been very helpful, and with all the losses and the hypervigilance around safety and yeah. you know, it's changed me, and I've I've shown up in a way that I'm I'm not super real happy with. 
I can, I can, I can understand that entirely. Um, I think it's a combination of things. I think the stress of it, I think the isolation, I think being on a screen for nine hours a day is not normal. Um, um, you know, I was, I, I was in this predicament not long ago where a, you know, a client who I, in my, in my clinical opinion, really, really, really needs to see a friend, even if it's in a park, six feet with double masks or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, and if the client is asking me, like, is that okay? Do I have your permission to do that? <laughs> you know, if you ask me, it's like that is 100% medically necessary. Yeah. If you ask, uh, if you ask a physician, they might say otherwise. They might say, no, it's not worth the risk, right? Or here are the numbers, or right, you're putting yourself at risk. Um, so I, I agree about the research piece. I agree about the ripples that I'm seeing in terms of people who are. Um, more isolated, more depressed, more anxious. I'm seeing OCD pop out of nowhere. I'm seeing uh, new addictions, domestic abuse. I, I mean, it's just been gnarly, yeah. to be honest, yeah. in terms of some of the themes in, in my clinical work. And we've had to make decisions that we come up with what we think is a, an appropriate protocol. And then when mental yeah. health comes into play, then we have to make a choice of do we want to be safe or do we want to have mental health issues? Totally. And again, this is this is the gray area. And I had to go through this with my kids who live out of town about do they come home and visit and what's good for my yeah. mental health? And do we let them stay here? Or do we not let them? Do we wear masks in the house? Mm -hmm. It's been an evolving process. And we've had some really uncomfortable conversations. And I'll tell you, I've shed so many tears over this. And it was hard for my kids. We just have yeah. to rumble with the messiness of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. We want there to be a clear rule. And again, it's just like that client asking me. He wants it to be a yes or no kind of thing, but it's a both and. It's a both yes, you know, uh, it would be good for you to see a friend. And there's some things to think about for you and your partner and your risk profile and all this stuff. I mean, it's been tremendous. This whole thing has been tremendous. Um, yeah. So. Uh, we do have a question here, um, and, and for those of you who are watching live uh, on YouTube here, feel free to ask a couple more questions. Uh, got a few more minutes here with Patricia. Um, so 770thinker is asking, he says, thanks for, he or she says, thanks for acknowledging those just starting out. Um, this topic of ideal client is not something I've addressed before on YouTube, so not really a question, but more of a remark. Um it's interesting, right? I mean, ideal client isn't a phrase that I heard in graduate school, come to think of it. Um, what do you think about that term? Like, what does that mean to you? I guess I'd want to know if this person is practicing at all. Yeah. And so you just start paying attention to your energy level before and after you have clients and what is it about those clients that you really enjoy. And like I said, it may not be what they're presenting with. It may be that they process deeply or they have deep feelings or like I said, you like people that, you know, like working with people that are angry or struggling with those types of things that you pay attention to what your energy level is and your enthusiasm level is to start getting a sense of what that might be or what things are you fascinated with? Are there certain diagnoses or you watch movies and there's certain profile types that just fascinate you that you want to know about that? Those may be your people. Totally. What do you think, John? I was thinking back to, again, when I was a graduate student and I guess, you know, even if you're in graduate school and you're looking at your, you're working in a clinic, you, you look at your calendar and, <laughs> you know, professors don't want you to admit this, but you look at your calendar and you go, oh, that's going to be a good, I can't wait for that client. That's going to be a good session, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or I look forward to seeing them. And I, I have to, for myself, I think, why is that, right? There's certainly some chemistry in terms of just being, able to, being 
able to get along well, to help them. Maybe as a therapist, I felt helpful right away. You know, maybe the client came in and gave me a lot to work with or was really open to me in that first session and I was able to really help them because certainly I know part of it, the work for me is when I feel effective, that feels like an ideal client. Like this is someone that's a good fit for me to help um, in terms of both our personalities fitting and also my style and them being open to me jumping in and helping. Um, I don't do great when clients come in for weeks or months and months and months, don't really let me in, you know, mm-hmm. or don't get better or don't try things as suggested. That's hard for me. Um, yeah. So I, I think you could think about it that way in terms of when you feel most helpful, most effective. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it also has to do with what your strengths are. Like I'm really good at holding space for people. And I was thinking about a client that I think this year in May will be four years we've been working together. This client took a long time to let me in because of all the trauma that they have. And for some reason there was enough material to work with when I started that we have this really, it's a really lovely relationship because the client has done the work and is really stuck with it. Yeah, totally. And the things that I can say now and reflect to this client, there's no way I could have said those things in the first year or two because they just weren't ready to hear it. I think that's powerful. You know, I think that long-term work is kind of, for many therapists, kind of what dreams are made of, right? To see a client through a a real chunk of their life, right? Through uh, losses and marriages and kids and divorces and all sorts of stuff. And you're there's the parallel process too of as as a therapist in your own life, you're having your own milestones, your own moments, your own uh, things that are happening, right? And some of which maybe the client is privy to, some maybe not. But um, yeah, I've had some clients now for, you know, yes, seven, seven, eight years or so. And that's um, really powerful stuff. Yeah. It is. It is. About it. Yeah. And we may be the first person that a client meets with. And so we're just creating safety for them. And I, you know, again, you get to decide who you want to work with, but mm-hmm. we just may be creating that safe space and somebody's not ready to do depth work. They just want to know that somebody can show up for them and is not going to reject them or judge them or criticize them. And I hear sometimes clients at therapists say, you know, we're not making progress, but the client's getting something out of it. This is a huge lesson for me and my ego over the years of going back to the ideal client wanting to feel effective. Um, that was the younger, more ambitious therapist of me wanting to show my tricks and measuring my success to my clients getting better, right? Or getting better fast. Um, the longer I do this, the more I realize for many clients, especially those that keep showing up, even when things are going really well in their life, they are in part coming because they want someone to bear witness to their life, both their suffering and their their highs, right? In those those joyful moments. They also just want someone to 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 um, to attune to them, to pay attention to them, to let them know that you're okay, you're doing good. I'm here for you, you're doing good. That's extremely powerful, right? And there's nothing flashy about that in terms of, you know, technique or, um, uh, you know, being super active in the session, whatever it is. And um, it's just those those core components of the therapeutic relationship or the, the kind of Rogerian elements are um, very, very potent. But oftentimes for for new therapists, it doesn't feel like enough, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's okay to check in with clients to see how they're doing. Again, that's how we create safety. In one of my groups last week, it's easy for me to respond to the extroverts that are like me because that's what I resonate with. And sometimes people are more quiet and we talked about this and there's 
somebody in group that I, I just don't feel like I attune with. And so I asked for a reality check and they're like, I get so much out of being here. And I'm like, really, I don't feel like I'm giving you that much time and attention. Yeah. You know, that's why it's okay. And I have to be okay if the client and, and in another group, somebody said, I feel like I share and you don't respond to me. I said, I'm really sorry. Sometimes I do that and I'm really sorry. And I'm so glad that you told me mm-hmm. I have to be okay with that feedback and look at it. Yeah. And that's a skill that comes with time that, that ability to, to not take it personally, right. And to invite feedback from clients and, and then internalize it and use it and make the, make the work better as a result. Um, you know, Yalom is kind of famous for um, some of the work he did where um, after a session, he and the client would both document what happened <laughs> in session. Right. Um, and there were often major discrepancies, you know, I said this, or I cried and, you know, my therapist was cold, right. Or my therapist was judgmental. Right. And he's saying, you know, I was there, my client cried, I was warm. I leaned in, I was compassionate, you know, um, just fascinating that the, the kind of the lived experiences of either party, um, because in, in a large part, really good therapy can is often emotionally charged, right? And also yeah. there's a subjectivity to it as well. Hence the importance of processing, right? Or going back to how we started this interview today of um, inviting clients into that process um, and um, constantly attuning to it and making sure that the process is part of the conversation. Yeah. I think being able to talk about what's going on in the room is what we want to model to our clients. Mm-hmm. And during COVID, I've, I've said to clients, like, I feel like I'm just not aligning. I'm just not attuning with you. How are you doing? And a client sent me an email afterwards saying that they really got a lot out of the session. And I just thought, I, I don't get it. And I have times that yeah. I show up and I think, I don't know what I'm doing. Or a client says, I want to talk to you about mm-hmm. something and my heart drops. I'm like, oh no. Or I want to talk to you about something you said. And I'm like, oh no, what did I do? Mm-hmm. So it's not like I show up to all my sessions like, I love this and I just have, you know, yeah. I got to rumble with that stuff and my insecurities come up. That, that's just part of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. And and I think again, for the therapist listening, giving them real permission to, to be human. Um, well, Patricia, this has been great. I just wanted to thank you for coming on and also coming on without any prompts <laughs> and with, with, uh, with the last minute curveball of, hey, let's live stream this thing on YouTube, which is very like me. To- I didn't put on any yeah. makeup. <laughs> You've been a great, great sport. And this is actually the first time we've live streamed it on YouTube. So it's been cool. And hopefully next time people will ask more questions and stuff. But sure. um, thanks again for being here and to, to kind of lead us out. Please let us know how people can get in touch with you. And then, of course, we'll put links to your websites and your podcast and stuff in the sure. description. The best, the best thing is to go to unapologeticallysensitive.com. All my social media handles are there. I'm doing a lot of short videos on TikTok and Instagram. My online HSP course is launching first week in April. They're really powerful courses. And in COVID, with people feeling so isolated and wanting a sense of community of people that get you, I would highly recommend them. And I've done a ton of podcasts on with people that have taken the course. It's, it's on my website, so you can find everything there. Wonderful. Easy enough. We'll, we'll put those links in there. And again, Patricia, thanks so much for doing this and being able to be willing to just kind of explore with me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.